A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Some podcasts get all the attention. Joe Rogan is a media phenomenon. And then you have talk show stars like Joe Rogan who just wing it, who make it up as they go along. I don't think Joe Rogan does have an agenda. I don't think Joe Rogan stops that podcast, which takes bloody hours, and goes, right, what's next? (laughs) It began last month when a number of musical titans began to leave Spotify, accusing Joe Rogan's podcast of spreading COVID misinformation. Neil Young threatened to pull his music from Spotify, saying they can have Rogan or Young. Not both. Joni Mitchell is joining fellow singer-songwriter Neil Young in asking for her music to be removed from Spotify. Now, the former U.S. President Donald Trump has waded in, backing Joe Rogan. While Spotify's shares have plummeted, the company has stood by the host, but now they might have competition. It has been reported now that Rumble offered Joe Rogan $100 million dollars to leave Spotify and come onto their platform. This is literally a battle for social media. This is a battle for people that want to speak freely, and it could be absolutely huge. But what responsibilities do Rogan and a mainstream platform like Spotify have to the 11 million listeners of the Joe Rogan experience? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today... Spotify, Joe Rogan, and the COVID culture war. I'm James Marriott. I'm a columnist and a book reviewer for The Times. James, you also review podcasts, which is incredibly helpful for this subject. Tell us a bit about Joe Rogan's, for people who haven't heard it. So Joe Rogan's podcast is probably the most popular podcast in the world. It's certainly the most popular podcast on Spotify, the platform which hosts it. It's really extraordinary and quite unusual. The New York Times got this great phrase. I think they call it one of the most consumed media products in the world. He's not just competing with other podcasts. It's films. It's TV. He's right up there with the most popular, horrible word, content anywhere in the world at the moment. A lot of podcasts are freeform conversations between a host and his guests or her guests. Joe Rogan hosts these conversations, which are three hours, four hours, sometimes getting on for five hours long. And people listen. Each episode, I think they say the average is 11 million listens. He did a famous episode with Elon Musk that has, I think, about 30 million listens on YouTube alone. Rogan persuaded him to smoke marijuana during the podcast. So is that a joint? 
Or is it a cigar? No. Okay. It's um, marijuana inside of uh, tobacco. Okay. So it's like posh pot, tobacco pot. You never had that? Yeah. I think I tried one once. Come on, man. (laughs) You probably can't because stockholders, right? I mean, it's legal, right? It's totally legal. Okay. And there are all these sort of fantastic memes came out of it of Musk wielding his spliff, looking very philosophical and thoughtful. Rogan will often pass his guests a glass of whiskey. It's a, it's a kind of visual thing, too. You can also watch him talking to his guests as well as listen. And he's obviously a very visually striking man with this kind of extraordinary potato-like bald head, these tight T-shirts. He's very muscular, covered in tattoos. You know, for people who haven't heard it, four or five hours does sound like an extraordinary amount of time to, to hold your attention What is it about his podcast that makes it so popular? What is it about him? He himself is an extremely charismatic person, has a kind of laid back, very amenable, friendly manner. He's got an extremely wide, extremely eclectic range of interests. So it runs from he's very interested in psychedelic drugs. He's fascinated by aspects of sociology, science, Another of his big sort of fascinations is, I guess, what we'd call woke culture, which he is is very much against. And he's very preoccupied, quite appropriately, given the trouble he's currently in with issues about free speech. Obama wrote, he, yeah, he didn't write, he gave a speech. That oh, was I actually saw that. Excellent. He's telling people, like, we, we're looking to cancel people all the time. The, the world is messy. And it is messy. Here's the th- what we got to stop looking for things that make you angry and just p- try try to let things go and just be nice to each other. I guess his distinguishing quality as an interviewer and as a podcaster is this just amazing curiosity. So there's almost nothing that a guest can say that Joe Rogan won't want to know more about it, won't start quizzing them on it, and always asking with this kind of uncanny ability to know precisely which questions he should go for, what you want to know about probing further, sticking his own thoughts in. There's a lovely episode recently where someone was talking about this new brand of pillows that you have to activate (laughs) by putting them... I wasn't expecting that as a subject. Yeah, he's kind of obsessed with sort of optimising his life as well. This is a big thing for him. So they mentioned these kind of pillows that you have to activate by putting in the tumble dryer. And he was just like, I'm so curious. We've We've got to look into these pillows. Apparently, if you get the pillows, you have to put them in the dryer to activate them. I don't know what that's about. Activate them? I don't know what this is about. Wait a minute. What are you saying? What are you talking about? Like what? There's just pillows. a pillow. Is there it's anything? It's just a pillow. No, it's just a just. How you, could it change when you put it in a dryer? Who knows? Probably gets hot and like I don't know. He starts talking about the pillow that he used, which I think was some kind of memory foam thing. I got one of these groovy uh, foam ones. That's like it's like a hold for your head, and your head sits in there, yeah, it locks it in place. Then he had this whole history of all the pillows he's ever <laughs> used. All the way through his life. I and mean, how in the wrong hands, this could be terrible material. It's charming. And it's kind of indicative of his best quality, which is this just like real curiosity, this sort of childlike boyish fascination bordering, I think the criticism would be on credulity about basically anything. And who is Joe Rogan? Because for a lot of us, he sort of appeared fully formed as the, the man who was drawing an awful lot of the podcast world towards him. Where did he come from? What's his background? He's got a kind of strange, mixed sort of background. So the other thing he's famous for is doing stand-up comedy. He does these Netflix stand-up comedy specials. Before that, he had a career presenting a, a US kind of reality TV show called The Fear Factor, in which contestants would compete to do various stunts that eat bugs, do kind of wacky things. And after that, he had another career as a commentator on mixed martial arts fights. 
And what do we know about his politics? His politics are really interesting. I think the best way to characterize them broadly is anti-establishment. He's often characterized by people on the left as being the sort of right-wing provocateur. I think that's not quite accurate. He does have a lot of right-wing figures on, people like Douglas Murray, who've been very critical of what you'd call the woke movement. But during the last Democratic primaries, he supported the left-wing senator Bernie Sanders. So I think you would probably say it's this kind of broadly anti-establishment thing that is defined more than anything by a kind of hostility to what you'd call woke culture, infringements on free speech, rules about language. These are things that he's very hostile to and come up repeatedly on his show, probably more than any other political issue. And in terms of political issues, he's sort of run into trouble here because of COVID. What are his views on on COVID as far as we know? There's certainly an element of scepticism and and credulity. He's had these two recent scandals where guests have come on who have been definitely outside the scientific mainstream and spreading basically disinformation or misinformation about vaccines. One of them was this guy, Dr. Robert Malone, who's banned from Twitter. And if we want to appeal to authority, for example, we could talk about someone, say, Robert, Dr. Robert Malone, who is the man who invented the vaccine, who suggests that people, young people, for example, no, he's, don't hang, take he's, it. He, I don't think he is the man who invented the vaccine. He was, well, he he was critical in inventing mRNA vaccines. Let's he was. let Robin answer okay. that, and then I'll come to uh, that, some other people in the audience. That, that has, it's nonsense. He didn't invent okay. mRNA vaccines. Rogan invited him onto the podcast where he made these claims that people were being hypnotised into accepting the vaccines and wearing masks and called it this, he was accusing it of being this phenomenon of mass formation psychosis. We're all isolated from each other. We're all on our little tools. We're not connected socially anymore, except through social media. Um, And then this thing happened and everybody focused on it. That is how mass formation psychosis happens. And that is what's happened here. And another guest that Rogan's had on is this guy, Dr. Peter McCullough, who's famous for his anti-vax views. And I think this is where Rogan's curiosity turns into a kind of credulity that is maybe, given the size of his platform, slightly, slightly dangerous. I mean, that's really interesting because a lot of people have sort of talked about the issue without actually hearing the podcast. So it's interesting to know what's actually in them. People seem to assume that perhaps Joe Rogan is an anti-vaxxer. Is there some truth in that? It seems ambiguous and he's always hard to pin down to any position. Anti-vaxxer might be putting it a bit strongly. I think he has said that people should get the vaccine, but his sort of scandals tend to be a little bit around the edges. There was an incident where he was insisting to one guest that the coronavirus vaccine could increase the risk of myocarditis or heart inflammation in boys and young men. And the guest had to turn around and say, actually, catching coronavirus increases your risk of this disease, myocarditis, by many more times than having the vaccine does. For young boys in particular, there's an adverse risk associated with the vaccine. It's like a two to four fold increase in the instances of myocarditis. Yes. But you know what? Hospitalization. You know that there's an increased risk of myocarditis among that age cohort from getting COVID as well, which exceeds the risk of myocarditis from the vaccine. I don't think that's true. I don't think it's true. I don't No, No, no. I don't think it's true that there's an increased risk of myocarditis from people catching COVID that are young versus increased risk of myocarditis from the vaccine. No, there is. Well, let's look that up, because I don't think that's true. (laughs) They did look it up, and the guest, Australian broadcaster Josh Zepps, was right. 
They went on to talk amiably for another two and a half hours. And afterwards, Rogan tweeted, If anyone was going to make me look dumb on the podcast, I'm glad it's Josh Zepps. He's awesome. I think at one point he did also say that he would advise a healthy young man not to get the vaccine, which is a kind of anti-vaccine, but I don't think it's full-on conspiracy theory, brain worms, it's a government plot, nobody should get it, it's a microchip that Bill <laughs> Gates has sent to infiltrate your bloodstream and change your genes. I wouldn't, I'd be, I would not put him in that, in that camp of anti-vaccine. Okay, so that, that's good to know. He's not, he's not completely out there on the spectrum of suspicion. But in terms of the, the podcasts that he's got into trouble for now, again, for people who haven't heard them, when people are putting forward quite controversial opinions, does he offer any challenge? Does he question them, push back, try to counter them in any way? He does. How effective you think that challenge is, is probably slightly open to interpretation. So his first big scandal since joining Spotify was with the conspiracy theorist Alex Jones, who is persona non grata, has been deplatformed from almost every platform it's possible to imagine because he has this really slightly horrible history of pursuing, among many other things, pursuing the parents of the kids who were murdered in the Sandy Hook massacre with this awful accusation that they were crisis actors employed by the government. Made up the death of their own children. Yeah, I mean, awful stuff. This really kind of wild conspiracy theorist who's made a lot of people's lives very miserable. He's been on Rogan and that tends to cause a lot of a lot of controversy. His most recent appearance, Joe Rogan promised he was going to fact check him, which mostly involves him shouting at his producer to sort of Google things and look them up on Wikipedia or, you know, respected news websites. The now, well, but hold up, before you go any further, you said AT&T. Has it been proven that it's AT&T or are you just saying AT&T-like companies? I've told you before, what you really need on your show is like a, a legit journalist who's right next to you with a laptop going, Alex, hold on, hold on, just slow down. It's it's a step in the right direction. He's trying. I would certainly say that Joe Rogan does not challenge a figure like Alex Jones in the way that Alex Jones would be challenged relentlessly and endlessly if he were to go on yeah. the BBC, say. And in terms of this latest controversy, you know, there was an immediate backlash, I think, 270 doctors and scientists wrote to Spotify complaining, but it only really grabbed global attention and headlines when all the musicians began to join in. Talk us through that. Talk us through what's been going on. The two most prominent musicians who've objected to Joe Rogan's vaccine misinformation are Joni Mitchell and Neil Young, two of the great geniuses of their generation, I think any music fan would acknowledge. And I suppose part of the fascination is that these people, especially for people of a certain generation, are about as big as celebrities as it's possible to imagine. And this guy, Joe Rogan, who a lot of people haven't necessarily heard of, is just bigger than both of them combined. So what is it that makes Spotify back Joe Rogan over the musical stars who are walking away? How exactly does the platform work and why does Rogan have such a powerful presence within it? That's coming up after a quick word from one of my colleagues. I'm Matthew Campbell, foreign features editor at the Sunday Times. I've always had a hunger for news, finding out things about parts of the world away from the beaten track. We can only do this thanks to the subscribers of the Times and Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times.
Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com We've looked at Joe Rogan and what makes his podcast tick. But what about the musicians, the other half of this row? What's driving them? we turned to our in-house expert. My name is Will Hodgkinson. I'm the chief rock and pop critic for The Times. And Will, Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, and now others are following suit. Why are so many musicians leaving Spotify? Well, I'm not a fan of censorship, but Joe Rogan was discussing, potentially promoting alternatives to vaccines, suggesting ivermectin, to treat COVID. And it's worth remembering that both Neil Young and Joni Mitchell both suffered from polio when they were kids. So I think they probably are in favour of vaccines and do understand the danger of resistance to them. I mean, what begins to become the question here is that if Spotify is running a podcast, then you have a responsibility to an audience. You know, Spotify's come along effectively as a platform which is allowing people to stream music in the way that they would have done with radios in the past. But whereas there are rules for broadcasts on radio, so if you heard the news in between the music on the radio, that would have regulation, it would have rules. With podcasts, that, that doesn't seem to apply. People haven't quite worked out how to regulate or hold them accountable. But shouldn't it be accountable? If you're talking about an audience of 11 million, which Rogan regularly pulls in, it should be accountable. And this is actually a a parallel argument of what's been going on with the financial side of Spotify. If the BBC plays a song on the radio, then they have to pay what's called equitable remuneration. That is 50% to the artist and 50% to the publisher, which is generally the record label. So that falls under radio. Now, Spotify say, well, we're, we're a streaming service. We're not a radio station, so we don't follow those rules. Hence, a loophole where they don't have to pay the amount that they would if they're a radio station. Now, that's the same argument as the moral argument, because the moral argument is saying, well, we're not a radio station. It's a podcast. We can say whatever we like. You know, it's opinions. But imagine the New York Times, imagine the Times, and the Sunday Times, any of these publications printing an article, which is not opinion is one thing. But if you're actually stating facts that aren't true, you get sued in an instant. I think at the moment that legality doesn't exist in them. But suddenly you have someone like Neil Young, who's a great countercultural hero, threatens to take his music off Spotify and Spotify then goes, OK, fine, not thinking much of it. And it blows up to a huge, huge story. So it kind of shows you the power of these figures. You know, the Joe Rogan podcast, that's sort of the instant trigger. But what were the other sort of underlying causes for anger at Spotify? Well, I think the underlying anger is the the financial setup. If you imagine all of the money that comes into Spotify in in the form of subscriptions and ads, and if you imagine all of the streams that go on all over the world, they go to a big pot and then they get divided out again. Now, that sounds good, but it basically means that it's done by percentage. So if you're Ed Sheeran or 
Drake or one of the biggest artists in the world and you get billions of streams, Mm. that means that you're actually getting money from the streams generated by an artist who may only be getting a couple of million, which in the great scheme of things is not enough. So, for example, Tamsin Little, I think it was, a classical violinist, very successful, had been making a good career. She published last year her royalty for Spotify, and she said that for 5 million Spotify streams for these albums she recorded in the 90s, she got £12.34. Now compare that to Ed Sheeran's Shape of You, which is the most streamed track in the world, with something like two and a half billion plays. That's meant to have made Ed Sheeran 14.6 million. I mean, it's all very shady, and this is the problem. You know, you have this system, which is great, but at the moment, one of the big problems, I mean, Neil Young is fine. He just sold off half of his publishing for £150 million to a company called Hypnosis. So he has no problems financially. The amount he makes on Spotify is negligible. But I think that it's a big question for all of the other artists. I mean, there was a letter written last year, which is arguing for equitable remuneration. It was signed by everyone from Jimmy Page to Paul McCartney to Coldplay to Kate Bush, really big names, writing to the government saying that the streaming model can't continue as it is. It's making a lot of money for the major labels. It's making a lot of money for Spotify, but the money's not coming through. You know, all arguments about free speech aside, you could see Spotify were going to back up Joe Rogan because they've paid him an awful lot of money for his podcast, you know, $100 million to run it on their platform. I suppose for a lot of musicians, whatever they think of the arguments about vaccinations and free speech, just looking at the figures too, comparing what they're being paid from Spotify versus how much they're paying somebody like Joe Rogan must be quite difficult. I mean, that's, that's an interesting thing as well. All of these people who, who basically made Spotify what it is, the music was licensed. So they got all this material. And then from that, now being a cash-rich company, they can afford to get a very popular comedian like Joe Rogan and mm. give him his own podcast and pay him a lot of money for it. So do you think this row, which started off about potential misinformation, do you think it might end up sort of morphing into something much more fundamental for Spotify? You know, if it does give a lot of artists the opportunity to stop and think about how much Spotify is able to pay people for podcasts versus how much they're receiving for their their content. I mean, could this end up changing the Spotify model? I think that's a very good question. And I do think it will change it. And I think this is actually the underlying theme. I mean, arguments about vaccinations is one thing. I think what's happening is that all these musicians are thinking, you know, for the last two years, I've been depending on my Spotify royalties. Why are they so low when I've been, been having millions of streams? Before they didn't have time to think about it. Before they were on tour all the time. And musicians are not business people. They don't think in those terms. They do it because they love it. But when you're stuck at home, unexpectedly, for two years, you're going to start looking at your financial situation. And you're going to start thinking, hmm, well, we built Spotify. Ultimately, it's nothing without the music. And they have enough money to pay this guy. So, you know, It's got to be worked out in a more fair way. Spotify, for their part, say they stand by Joe Rogan, even after a series of clips emerged in the last few days showing the podcast host using the N-word on numerous occasions. Spotify has quietly removed 113 episodes of the Joe Rogan podcast following the scandal, including additions 
featuring far-right commentators and conspiracy theorists like Alex Jones. It's also announced that it will spend another $100 million investing in podcasts from historically marginalised groups. Joe Rogan, in the meantime, has been apologising, not just for the use of the N-word, as James Marriott explains. He issued this, I think... The video itself was fairly persuasive. He posted this video to his Instagram account of himself wearing this grey hoodie, looking kind of reasonable and speaking very reasonably about the fact that it was his job to host different points of view. Free speech was important. The podcast has been accused of spreading dangerous misinformation, specifically about two episodes. I do not know if they're right. I don't know because I'm not a doctor. I'm not a scientist. I'm just a person who sits down and talks to people and has conversations with them. Do I get things wrong? Absolutely, I get things wrong. But I try to correct them. Whenever I get something wrong, I try to correct it because I'm interested in telling the truth. And I'm interested in having interesting conversations with people that have differing opinions. He didn't get everything right, but he tried. Some things he said that would once have been denounced as misinformation that he'd views he'd had in his show were now accepted as mainstream science. He pointed out that he'd had guests on talking about the lab leak hypothesis for coronavirus in China, this idea that coronavirus didn't arise naturally but was leaked from a Chinese lab, which he said you once upon a time you'd have been banned from Twitter or a social media platform for espousing and now was a fairly mainstream idea. I think he also pointed out that this whole idea that cloth masks are ineffective would once have got you in trouble and now, he says, has sort of scientific backing. Don't wear a cloth mask. Cloth masks are little more than facial decorations. There's no place for them in light of Omicron. And so wear a high-quality mask, at least a three-ply surgical mask. So he was trying to say that, I think, he hosts a diversity of opinions. Don't be so sure that everything you denounce now won't eventually come to be mainstream and accepted, which I think he has a reasonable point but I do think I do think he's a little bit disingenuous if you think of the kinds of people who end up on his show and the kinds of things they get away with saying compared to how responsible the BBC would try to be or another broadcaster with a reach equivalent or probably even less than Joe Rogan's reach and the huge responsibility they would feel to the truth and to their audience and to being really certain they were not spreading misinformation. And what have Spotify, what's the platform said about how they're going to deal with his podcasts in the future. Have they sort of come out with any statement of taking responsibility? What Spotify have done is that the episodes that spread COVID misinformation have warnings on them that this that this is what they do. But the suggestion that Rogan will leave Spotify is it's just not going to happen. That's not something I can imagine Spotify really ever doing. Frankly, it's a kind of strange position for Spotify because... I think they do have more of an editorial responsibility for Joe Rogan and the things that he says. And they're trying to tread this line that other big tech companies have followed, which is that we're not responsible for the content on our platforms. It would be impossible for us to edit every single podcast, to put warnings on every single podcast that was ever published on Spotify. The thing with Joe Rogan is that they're not just hosting Joe Rogan. He doesn't just happen to be there. They paid him $100 million for this exclusive deal. And you can imagine if a, if a journalist at a newspaper like The Times had been paid that much money and was blithely spreading misinformation, there would be a lot of editors at The Times to stop that happening. It's kind of like, why does Spotify get this massive free pass to broadcast 
things that are frankly wrong and incorrect about science and other media companies have this extremely expensive responsibility to make sure that they tell the truth. I mean, this is, it does feel like a very live debate at the moment with tech platforms and the idea of free speech, but also where it starts to become problematic. There are lots of people who will say it shouldn't be up to tech companies to be the arbiters of who gets to say what. You know, there was a lot of people objecting to Trump being taken off Twitter, for example. Do you think there is a problem with tech companies being allowed to to pull content they don't like? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just, it's a fascinating problem because obviously a company like Facebook or Twitter, it's not like a newspaper choosing to platform or not platform a particular columnist because there are competing newspapers that put forward competing political opinions. So the diversity of opinion exists within the market for newspapers. But because these tech companies essentially tend to be monopolies, if you're deplatformed from Twitter or Facebook, that really is a huge blow to your the audience you can reach, the extent of your free speech. So they just have this kind of enormous power over the public discourse that no one elected them to have that power. Why do these people sitting in their offices in Silicon Valley just have this extraordinary control over over the public discourse? And I suppose we should say that, you know, even when it comes to science, free speech is incredibly important. You know, there, there was a time when Galileo, you know, wasn't mainstream, but thank God his views were heard. So, you know, is there an argument for letting even really controversial scientists have a say? Yeah, I mean, this is why you need an editorial process, because frankly, I'm not qualified. And I'm sure that a lot of people working at these big tech companies aren't qualified to say what controversial science does and doesn't fall within the bounds of reasonable discussion. Mm. This is the kind of decision that requires a really expert, clever editor with a lot of experience in a particular field, a lot of experience of editing to make that call. And I guess part of the problem with Joe Rogan and his idea about free speech is he's always going on the podcast about, we just have to have all the information and I'm going to kind of arbitrate about it and work out what's best. And frankly, I don't think he's proved that he's a very good judge of necessarily what ideas and what information are best. And I suppose, is there something sort of in particular about the way he works? You know, the idea that people are listening to three or four hour long podcasts every week, they're spending a lot of time with him. There's almost sort of blocks out time to get other sources of information, or you're like more likely to trust something that you're investing so much time in. Yeah, I mean, this is the great appeal of podcasts. As someone who's listened to a lot of, a lot of podcasts, I know that, you know, the appeal of a lot of my favourite podcasts is that the people you're hearing chatting kind of feel like your friends and you you really trust them. And it's this much more intimate relationship than it would ever be possible to have with a kind of more authoritative, more sort of top-down media organisation. Yeah, I think this gives him a kind of special responsibility because I think a lot of people take what he says very seriously. And in terms of the traditional media... You know, is this part of his appeal that he's not as restricted as they are? I mean, is there anything that traditional media could learn from his popularity? I mean, 11 million listeners is extraordinary. I think there are lessons. I think some of his tolerance for free speech and his willingness to talk to anyone and to interrogate them is really good. And we all exist in our media bubbles, but the kind of media bubble that Joe Rogan has created is a probably a very different one to the kind that you might find on the BBC or any sort of traditional newspaper. And it's just a whole other collection of voices. And that's a really valuable thing. We should all be looking at who should we be hearing from, who we aren't hearing from, who's interesting. The other thing you can really say in his praise is that smart people are given hours and hours and hours to talk. There is this appetite for 
really in-depth discussion. And I think that's a real lesson that not everything has to be like short and glib and there is space for proper long conversations. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, The Times Deputy Books Editor, James Marriott, and The Times Rock and Pop Critic, Will Hodgkinson. You can read more of James and Will's work at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription. The producers today were Chris Wade and Asia Fuchs. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by Tom Birchall. If you enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a review. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. <laughs>